Welcome to a special message with Michael Anthony at CourageMatters.com. Today, we have a special guest speaker, Pastor Brandon Viath from Grace Fellowship in York, Pennsylvania. Pastor Brandon is the student ministries pastor at Grace Fellowship, where Michael Anthony serves as the lead pastor. So hold on to your seats as Pastor Brandon teaches from God's Word. My wife and I, we were actually in northern New Jersey um, because my niece was getting christened. She was being uh, dedicated to the Lord. And it was an incredible experience, honoring, humbling experience, because my brother-in-law, my sister-in-law, they asked me to be her godfather. And I really saw that as just an incredible opportunity to speak into their lives about what it looks like to walk with the Lord and also to speak into her life as she grows and develops and matures. And uh, my niece's name is Camila. Now, during the service, things were, were going well, and then they called up the parents, and they called up Camila, and they called up the godparents to dedicate the child to christen her. And the, the pastor, the first time he said her name, he said Camila, and it was fine. But after that, it went downhill. And he switched to Carmela, Carmila, Camila, Chattanooga, Cincinnati. He just gave up, just out in left field. But it was such an honoring experience, a humbling experience that they would ask me to do that. And I just felt like I really grew closer to them as well as all of my wife's family. And they gave me a a little gift to to thank me for doing that. Um, And I really appreciated it. It's basically, it's a small desk clock with a picture of her and it holds my business cards and it holds a pen and, and, you know, something that you would normally give to somebody on Christmas or a birthday, just something cool to add to their office, you know, to, as a conversation piece. And at the bottom of it had an encryption um, that said, Uncle Brandon, Proverbs 22, 6, love Camila. And I thought it was a very nice gift. And many of you have heard Proverbs 22, 6 before. You've heard that verse before. People love to quote that verse when it comes to parenting. Um, so if you have your Bibles, turn to Proverbs 22, Verse six, it says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, as I said, that this verse, many of you have heard that before, and it's often used to talk about parenting and things like that. You know, people love this verse. They think, man, when my child's born, I'm gonna have this tattooed on their foot so they never forget it. I'm gonna train them up and they're gonna know it. They ain't gonna forget it. But the problem with this verse is that we only go so far. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not some 24-year-old that's been married just a little more than a year with no kids that's about to start talking about parenting. Don't worry. But there's an incredibly important aspect of parenting that we have to discuss. Now, singles, don't check out because you're gonna hear an incredible way that you're able to step into a family paradigm and how you're able to love on people in a very unique way. Because here's the problem, parents, is that most of us look at Proverbs 22.6 and we think that it's a great verse, but when it comes to the application of that verse, then we kind of get a little shaky. Things get a little sticky. So what's kind of been happening as an epidemic across the U.S. is that families are going into churches and saying, uh, I don't really know how to train up my child, so you do it. Like, I'm going to put my child in children's ministry and student ministry. I'm going to let you train my child. And then I'll just kind of, you know, give you a high five and say, good job. But the problem is, is that the church has been welcoming parents with open arms saying, yeah, sure, we'll do your job for you. But that's not the biblical model of what the family should be. That's not the biblical model of what the church should be. Now, before each service, 
the worship team and whoever's speaking that morning, we all get to, together in a quiet room to pray for the service and pray for different things. And Pastor Greg, the worship pastor, he specifically mentioned the idea of separation of church and state. And Pastor Mike has been referencing this quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. And he's been talking about this idea that separation of church and state is not a biblical idea. And it's not even in any legal document. But something that we're missing, that we're not discussing, is the separation of church and family. And that a family of four could walk in on a Sunday morning and the parents or the grandparents go into the auditorium and the kids go down to the children's ministry, the babies go to the nursery and the students go to the student center and we never really worship together. And we start to see the church kind of getting its way into the family and pushing people apart. But the Bible points us to a very different idea of what the family should look like. Now, I did my undergraduate degree and my master's degree at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. And some of you may have heard the commercials or heard of Liberty before or a mentioning of Jerry Falwell in your time. And as I was at Liberty and I was getting involved in the church ministries classes, the Bible class, as I was studying my degree, I also got involved in student leadership. And I was able to do Bible studies with students and train them and lead them. And the longer I was there, the more I started to get a hold of a few buzzwords that Liberty students are obsessed with. One of them is devoted. Another one is intentional. Another one is community. And another one is discipleship. And these are those words that people, you know, the more times you can get that word into a sentence, the more spiritual you sound. Like, oh, guys, I just had the most devoted devotional I ever devoted. And it was incredible. But the Lord has really laid on my heart that I'm not intentionally being intentional about being intentional. And it's one of those words that are just thrown around all the time. And the one that I really want to hone in, the one that we've really missed out on is discipleship. What that looks like. And not just in the family, but what that looks like in the church. What that looks like for singles. So parents, this is for you. Students, children, this is for you. Singles, this is for you. Grandparents, aunts, uncles, this is for all of you. And here's why. Multiple people throughout the months and years ask me, you know, why student ministry? You know, why in the world wouldn't you want to do ministry with a group of kids that all they like to do is eat Skittles and drink Mountain Dew? Like, literally, last Wednesday night, I had a student hitting ping pong balls at my head. Like, why? But what's so few people understand about student ministry is that because of where they are in life, when they understand what a relationship with Jesus looks like, when they catch hold of it, it so radically transforms their life, it's just such an incredible thing to see. Now, here's what's interesting. The International Bible Association, or International Bible Society, and the National Association of Evangelicals, they both did studies in 2015, and they found that over 97% 97% of people accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior between the ages of 4 and 30. Between 4 and 30. 85% was between ages 4 and 25. So we better be investing in our children's ministry and in our student ministry and in our young adults ministry. 97% before the age of 30. Now, that's an incredible statistic, and it makes you think, man, I'm so glad I have my child in children's ministry, or I'm so glad I have my child in the student ministry, or I'm glad that I went to children's ministry. 
Here's the flip side of that. There's a study done by Fuller Theological Seminary, 2014. It showed that 70%, 70 will leave the church after they graduate high school. 70%. If you know 10 people with kids in the church, seven out of those 10 kids will leave when they graduate high school. That's not okay. And Fuller Theological Seminary, they boiled it down to a few reasons of why they were leaving, but they found that the most prominent reason was that kids did not feel plugged into the church. They felt plugged into a ministry. So when a senior in high school graduated from this student ministry, they didn't feel like they had a place in the church. They didn't know any of the adults. They had to sit in the service. They couldn't go to the student ministry. They weren't doing the fun activities. So they would just leave because they didn't feel like they had a place. But then Fuller also offers a way to attack this. And basically what they suggest is a five to one ratio. And you're thinking, oh yeah, five to one. That's, you know, I take those, that ratio in the classroom any day. Five kids to one teacher, like five students to one leader. That's awesome. No, it's the other way around. Fuller suggests that a student needs five meaningful, impacting relationships with adults to truly impact their life for Christ. That our children and our students are not just joining some social club that when they leave, they have to go, but they are a part of a church that happened to attend the student ministry. So I want to clarify a few things with you this morning as we talk about this idea of discipleship, because here's the thing, guys. Discipleship is a huge part of Grace's mission. You know, why we're doing what we're doing, where we want to go. And a lot of you know the verse in Matthew 28 that Christ gives to the disciples. So if you have your Bibles, flip over to Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. And Jesus is giving what is called the Great Commission, his his really his last hurrah, his last commandment. And some of you have heard this before. Most of you probably have. Starting at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, this is an incredible passage, but like I said, discipleship is one of those buzzwords, one of those words that we often make way too complicated. So we get unattracted to the idea of discipleship because we feel like it's some program, something that we have to put on our to-do list, and if we don't, you failed. But that's why simplicity is one of our key values. Because when we start to see discipleship for what it really is, instead of some overcomplicated curriculum and church program or some class that we have to attend, then we start to see that discipleship is something that I have to make a part of my everyday life. So if you're not taking notes, I suggest that you at least take a picture of the screen or write this down for the definition of discipleship. It says that discipleship is a process. It's a continual thing. It's not a one and done. In which a mature believer with a life worth emulating helps to aid, guide, and mature a spiritual child to the point of impacting a third spiritual generation. Simple. One mature believer, one spiritual child, teach them and then send them. And what you see in this definition of discipleship are really three underpinnings, three key ideas that I want to break down for us this morning. And the first is that discipleship is relational. 
The second is that discipleship is rational. And the third is that discipleship is replicating. So discipleship is this process of a mature believer with a life worth emulating, taking on a spiritual child to teach them, train them, and then send them out. And within that relationship, it is gonna be relational, rational, and replicating. Now, parents, discipleship is not something that can be pawned off. As I said before, Proverbs 22, verse six is this incredible passage that talks about training up your child. And we've kind of been pushing that onto church programs. Now, hear me here. I know that I am young. I know that I do not have children, but I am not speaking out of my opinion. I'm trying to show you what the scripture says about discipleship. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy chapter six. And we're gonna be looking at verses four through nine. Now, what's interesting about Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four through nine, is it starts out with this this phrase called, hear, O Israel. And the Israelites would call this the Shema Yisrael, this Hebrew idea of hearing from the Lord. So I wanna read this passage together. I wanna look at this passage together. We're gonna break this down a little bit and see how this applies to discipleship within our families. So verse four, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the author here starts out with this incredibly beautiful, incredibly theological statement about the unity of God. Now, we're not gonna spend too much time unpacking this idea, but what the author is doing here is saying the foundation of your teaching, the foundation of your discipleship has to be God. It has to be this triune God that is one, the one true God. That yes, I can teach somebody how to be a carpenter. I can teach somebody how to be a plumber. I can teach somebody how to read, but that is an idea of mentorship. Discipleship has to be rooted in the Lord. It has to be rooted in this one true God. So it starts out with this idea, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Verse five, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, I love that follow-up because what the author is saying here is that we cannot let this therapeutic, moralistic deism drive discipleship. And that's the other epidemic that's been going on in the church is the Jesus that we've been preaching is not a Jesus that calls us to die to self. But basically, we've been preaching this God that basically says, I will comfort you and you have to do right and wrong. So it's therapeutic, it's moralistic, and there's a God. And that's why kids are leaving the church after they graduate high school because there's nothing compelling them to come back. The only thing they're learning is, well, do right and wrong, believe in God, and it'll help me out. I want you to take a second and examine your own life. Are you worshiping and following the one true God? Are you loving him, as it says in verse five, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might? Or are you just submitting to this idea of a therapeutic, moralistic deism? That yeah, there's a God who wants me to do right and wrong. He's out there somewhere and he makes me feel good. But that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the Christ that died for us on the cross. Now, what's so key here is that when it comes to discipleship, it has to be rooted in the Lord. And then this follow-up idea is that discipleship also has to be driven by love. 
that it can't be driven by what is right and wrong. Because let's be honest here, we've all had a moment where we've gone out to a restaurant, gone out for lunch, and maybe some of you today, you're gonna head out for lunch, I don't know, maybe Olive Garden, Linden Diner, they got good food. And you order a meal, and sometimes there's a a side or, or you have an option of what you would like to have with your meal. And usually the waiter, the waitress will let you know what some of the sides are. And the waiter, the waitress come up and you order your food and they say, okay, well, would you like a side salad or do you want some french fries? We all know that the right choice is the side salad, but we're not driven by what's right and wrong. We're driven by love. So most of us go, oh, give me some fries. My wife will never turn down fries. Add cheese and bacon. Oh, man. Honey, I love you, but you're like three seconds from leaving just to go get french fries. But we're driven by what we love, not necessarily what we think is right and wrong. So that's why when we start to worship a God on this premise of a therapeutic moralistic deism, nothing sticks because you're only being driven by the idea of right and wrong. You're not being driven by love. So when the author says here, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, as I said, they referred to this passage as the Shema Yisrael, and they actually took verses eight and nine very literally. And they would put the Shema within a wooden box and they would strap it to the back of their hands or they would strap it on their forehead. And they would walk around with this verse because they took the word of the Lord so seriously. Now, as I said before, discipleship has to be rooted in God and it has to be driven by love. And we see from this passage that we're supposed to be teaching this to our children. And it's interesting how he writes out that passage, that it's not like a classroom style setting, but he says, as you walk by the way, as you lie down, as you rise, that discipleship is not some program. It's not a curriculum. It's not something that can be written down and thought out. It's just a way of life. That the discipleship is supposed to be something that we are exemplifying before our children, something that we are supposed to be teaching our children, something that we are supposed to be sending our children out to do. But most of the time, we fall short in one or more of those aspects of discipleship that I mentioned before, relationally, rationally, or replicating. Now, for all my parents and grandparents out there, the relational aspect may seem very simple. Oh yeah, of course, it's my child. I have a relationship with them. You know, I talk with them, I ask them about their day, even though most of the time they just go, eh, it was okay, it was fine. What did you think of the sermon? I don't know. But you have a relationship with your child. I mean, you spend three quarters of your life in a minivan driving them to soccer practice and dance recitals and band practice and all these different things and your life begins to revolve around your child's schedule. So you have a relationship with your child, but parents, where so many of you, where so many of us are falling short is that we are not teaching them. We are not being rational with them. 
Now, there is definitely an aspect of being rational in discipleship because the word discipleship, the root word disciple, is often defined by a Greek word, methetes, which means student or pupil, that you actually have to teach your children. Now, what's difficult here is you're not just teaching them verbally, but you're also exemplifying these things. So the question becomes, what kind of God, what kind of Jesus are you teaching your children about? Are you teaching them this therapeutic, moralistic deism? Or are you teaching them what it looks like to die to self? Are you teaching them what it looks like to literally put your old ways to death and join Christ in resurrection and having new life? That type of love, that type of obedience unto the Lord, that type of teaching of your child is gonna cost you something. The two most difficult conversations I've ever had One was with a father, one was with a daughter. One of them was with my father-in-law. Most difficult conversation I ever had was asking him permission to marry my wife. And it wasn't that it was hard, it was that it was just terrifying. Now, I picked him up about 6.30 in the morning and we were gonna go to this local diner for breakfast. And I know he's not stupid. He knew exactly what I was doing. We had never spent one-on-one time before. And I swear to you, three miles turned into 300. Like, he was ready for what was gonna come. So when I picked him up and we're driving in the car, I was just kind of, you know, how's, how's work going? It's going good. Oh my gosh, you're not helping me here. Good, good weather we've been having, yep. So I'm just sitting and my nerves are just stewing and I'm like, oh my gosh, can we get there already? I wanna get this out of the way. So it was the hardest, one of the hardest conversations I've had because of the buildup to it. The second hardest conversation I've had was with my wife. At the time we were dating and we were on a car ride. So I had multiple hours locked in a small box. So I thought, hey, why not go for it? And I spent probably half the trip just laying out all of my sins, all of my failures, all of my shortcomings, all of my screw ups. And I had to just wait for her to respond to see if she would still accept me, to see if she would love me and show grace and forgiveness to me. I had no clue if she's gonna be like, stop, let me out, I'm a hitchhike. But she graciously forgave me and then she went on to tell me about her life and her failures and screw ups and we continue to learn more and more about each other as we move forward together. But parents, for you to show vulnerability before your child and let them see that you screw up, that you sin and you fail. Yes, that is terrifying, but it gives you an opportunity to exemplify what it looks like to be forgiven by a pure and holy God and then be redeemed and brought into a place of righteousness. If you do not let them see your failures, how can they see your redemption? Now, I was blessed with the opportunity about six months ago to sit down with a a mother and father that came in and they wanted to talk with me about the issues that they were having with their son. And they had a good relationship with him, but as he was struggling with things and as I talked with the father primarily, I started to see that he was not really rationally teaching his children. And it's been incredible to see over the last couple months. Now they, they spend time lifting weights together and while they're lifting weights, he's reading passages of scripture to him and talking to him about life. And he's starting to actually teach him what it looks like to follow Jesus. And the thing is, is he's starting to transform his relationship with his son because he's no longer viewing him as just my son, but he's viewing him as a brother in Christ that I have to encourage and uplift and bring along with me. 
Now, in Genesis 3, when God is giving the curse of sin to Adam and to Eve and to Satan, the serpent, and he looks at Eve and says, in pain and in sorrow, you will bring forth children, that I will greatly increase pain in childbirth. And the Hebrew word there is not just physical pain. But the Hebrew word that's being used is used to exemplify physical pain, but also mental, emotional, spiritual sorrow. So ladies, you're not just cursed with this physical pain of childbirth, but you're also cursed knowing that you have to bring up a child in a sinful and wicked world. And your role that you play in that is so complicated. But as I was talking with this mother and this father, and I was working with them and just talking with them about their son, and I've had to say this to multiple parents, that the hardest thing that you will ever have to do as a parent in the spiritual life of your child is to not have control. That each day you have to lay your head on the pillow knowing that you have absolutely zero control over the eternal state of your child. That all you can do is pray your guts out and teach them as much as you can and then pray that they hold on to it. So the relational aspect of discipleship is really pretty easy. You know the person, you talk with them, you know about their life. The rational aspect costs us something. We have to show some vulnerability. We have to kind of give up some of our pride and show true humility to be able to disciple our children. Now, singles, don't lose me here because remember, Fuller Theological Seminary, remember that statistic, that 70% will leave the church and that there needs to be a five to one ratio. There's only two parents in a children's life. So singles, you have the incredible opportunity to step into that family paradigm and start filling one of those five roles. So parents, you shouldn't just be praying for your child, but you should be begging God to send godly men and women to help disciple your children. So your child is not just hearing you pastor and teach and preach about the Bible and about the word of God, about walking with God, but you also have godly men and women who are coming alongside you to teach them as well. And what you can start to see is that there's a team of people just loving on your child, trying to raise them up so they would walk with God, so that they would honor God. Now, here's the thing. I don't want us to get lost just in this idea of discipleship within the family because what's incredible is that God redeems people from broken families. We're not so foolish to think that Christians only come from Christian families. But I love the example that we get from Paul and his relationship with Timothy and with Titus. And you see Paul go through these different stages of relationship and rationalness and replication within his relationship of Timothy and Titus, that he's actually discipling them. He's not like sitting down and going through some curriculum and teaching them a class, but he's just doing life with them. He's letting them see his life. So check this out, I love this. In 1 Timothy 1-2, it says, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. 2 Timothy 1-2, to Timothy, my beloved child. Titus 1.4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. And you see this aspect of a relationalness between Paul and Timothy and Paul and Titus. And he actually views them as his spiritual children because he spent so much time with them, training them, loving on them. That Timothy spent over 13 years ministering with Paul. That Timothy and Titus spent three years together with Paul in Ephesus ministering there. 
So they spent time living life together. They probably slept in the same places, ate the same things. They walked and talked and lived life together. Now, this is one element of Jesus' life that I would love to know more about. Like, I would love to hear kind of the, the conversations we don't see in the Gospels. So I want you to just think about this for a second. You know, we are humorous people. We love jokes. We love joking around and things like that. But if you think about Jesus' relationship with the disciples, I mean, you only see so much. You know, you have four books of the Bible, three years. You can only, there's no way you're going to cover all three years in just that short amount of pages. And we miss out on so much, you know, the conversations when they were journeying together and things like that. And I love to just think of Jesus as a humorous person as we are, that they would joke with one another, they would play pranks on each other and things like that. And there's no way you can say that Jesus wasn't humorous because we are and we were created in God's image. So I'd love to see more of that relationship. But we get to see that with Paul and Timothy and with Paul and Titus. And I love that element to it, that we get to see them on a very personal level. But Paul does not stop at the relationship aspect, which maybe you as a parent struggle with. You struggle to move past that relationship aspect. You have a relationship with your child, but you're not really teaching them. But Paul moves past that and he actually tries to rationally teach them. So if we look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, it says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Economium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. And Paul is saying to Timothy, listen, you know my ins and outs. I have taught you them. And I love that element that Paul is saying, listen, you've followed my teaching. You know what you're doing. I have exemplified it for you. I have taught you. And Paul had that type of relationship with Timothy and with Titus. But he did not stop there. He took it another step further. So he didn't stop at relationally, he kept moving forward. He didn't just stop at rationally, but then he replicated. There was an element where he sent them out. And this may add a new dynamic to your relationship with your children or with your grandchildren or or nieces and nephews that you're not just having a relationship with them, you're not just teaching them, but then you also have to see them as your equal. Because your relationship with the Lord supersedes any earthly relationship that we have with one another. So before that child is your child, he is God's child as you are. So if your child comes into a relationship with Jesus Christ, first and foremost, they are your brother or sister in Christ. Then they are your child. I know that that's a weird idea to to view your children, but when you start to finally do that, you can actually view your child as someone who you can have a natural conversation with, that you don't always have to be on guard. Because guess what? When your child starts to understand what walking with Jesus looks like, when you screw up, they can start to show you grace and show you love and forgiveness, and you start to learn something from your child. And I love, I love hearing the stories that Pastor Mike has started telling me as his oldest son, Titus, continues to grow and develop and mature in his walk with the Lord, Pastor Mike has told me stories of how Titus has confronted him on some things. And you think, oh gosh, that boy is brave. He is bold. 
But Pastor Mike loves the beauty of the relationship that's starting to develop with his son Titus that is only enriching their relationship more and more and more. So we have to get to this point of replication and we see that with Paul and Timothy and we see that with Paul and Titus. So in Romans 16 verse 21, it says, Timothy, my fellow worker. So Paul goes from viewing Timothy and Titus as his spiritual children to training them up and then sending them out. That he actually leaves Timothy in Ephesus to continue to minister there. And then he sends Titus to Crete to continue to minister there. So we have this idea of a mature believer with a life worth emulating, Paul. And then we see these spiritual children, Timothy and Titus, but they have to impact a third spiritual generation. That's when we get to this true meaning of discipleship. So what is kind of like our our goal here? What are we really striving for? Well, if you flip back just a couple pages to 1 Timothy chapter three, we start to see that. And Pastor Mike referenced these passages a few weeks ago where Paul is laying out to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter three, and he lays out to Titus in Titus one what it looks like to be a mature believer, to walk and talk with God, to follow him in every facet of your life. And he lays them out in the idea of church leadership. So 1 Timothy chapter three, starting at verse one, it says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now don't check out. Just because you're not pursuing a a position of church leadership does not mean that this does not apply to you. But what Paul is saying to Timothy is that especially your church leaders need to exemplify this. But this is, these are things we all need to be striving for. Verse two, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." So Paul lays out for Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 and then again to Titus in Titus 1 these qualifications of overseers, of church leaders, but those are things that we should all be striving for. And it kind of gives us a benchmark of what it looks like to reach that point of a mature believer with a life worth emulating. Because if you recall, Paul was the one that said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So parents, grandparents, what does that look like for you in your home? It means that you need to start recapturing the role of the primary discipler of your children. So hear me on this. The children's ministry, the student ministry, myself, Jen Ferris, the director of the children's ministry, those ministries, my position, Jen's position, they do not exist to replace discipleship within the family. So my role is not to parent your students. My role is not to be your student's best friend, but my role is to build a bridge between you and your student to engage with them so I can better equip and empower you as parents to train your child, to start recapturing that role as the primary discipler of your child. Now, what I would love to be able to do is be one of those five people. I would love to be one of those five people that have a meaningful impact on your child's life. 
But ultimately, my role is not to replace you as a parent, replace you as a grandparent or or a guardian or aunt or uncle. But my role is to come alongside of you. Because here's the thing, guys. The ministries within the church are not replacing discipleship. But rather, we are coming alongside of you and trying to empower you to go out and make disciples. The mission of the church to go and make disciples is not a job description that stays within the four walls, but rather it's a lifestyle that you are supposed to take and go outside of the church. That's what it means to be the church. That the church is not four walls. The church is not a doctrine or a set of beliefs or a pulpit and a pastor, but you are the church. So that's why we don't call joining grace, we call it partnership instead of membership because you're not joining some social club, but you're partnering with us on furthering the kingdom of God through discipleship. So parents, this applies to you. Students, children, this applies to you. Singles, this applies to you because you get to step into the church, step into this family paradigm and start filling those gaps and impacting students for the kingdom of God. Now, I love it. I love this idea when a a single person can come in and they can start to be mentored and discipled by the mother and father of a student. And as they're mentored and discipled, they can start to mentor and disciple that child. Because here's the thing, guys. We often make discipleship way, way too complicated. And that's where we get lost. But when we think of discipleship for what it is, when we look at it through a lens of simplicity, we start to see that discipleship is simply a lifestyle where you go, that is a man of God. That is a godly husband. That is a godly father. And I want to learn from him. That is a godly woman. That is a woman of God. That is a godly mother, a godly wife. And I want to learn from her. And that's why I love what I get to do with the student ministry leaders in the student ministry because these leaders are not there to be liked. They're not there to be loved. They're not there to do anything other than present an image of what a godly man or woman looks like. And maybe if God is willing and if they are so lucky, they get to fill one of those five spots in a student's life. So for me... Over the course of my life, I can clearly see different men and even different women who have spoken into my life and taught me different things and almost discipled me in a way. And when I was younger, from four to 18, for 14 years, I studied martial arts and my sensei, my instructor, he taught me perseverance and work ethic and determination and he discipled me in a way that I've worked with pastors who are much older than I, that had more experience than I, and they were able to disciple me. Pastor Mike is discipling myself and Pastor Joe and Pastor John, and he's pouring into us and training us. And that even the older I get, the more and more I see from my childhood how I was discipled by my father through his actions. So for example, every single winter, regardless of how cold it was, you know, if there was snow on the ground, we would go outside and we would shovel the snow. But as soon as we finished, I think, all right, sweet, we're done. Now I can go uh, have a snowball fight or I can go build a snowman or whatever it is I wanted to do. But without even hesitation, my dad would say, whoa, 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 what are you doing? We got to go do the neighbor's driveway. And usually my neighbors weren't even home. But my dad exemplified what it looked like to just serve. Now, I never understood, and I still don't understand what my dad did when I was a kid. He worked for Lockheed Martin, but I don't understand what his job was, so I just assume he was some federal agent. 
I mean, he's kind, of, he's kind of quiet and reserved anyway. He doesn't show too many emotions. So I think in his training, they just beat out of him all emotions and he's just, he's, he, he's here for a specific reason. He's joining our security team. Um, but I still don't understand what my father did, but I know that my father really did climb the corporate world. He reached the role of manager and supervisor and he won these different awards. But the only reason I knew that is because my mom told me. I never heard it from him. He was never bragging about his job. He was never bragging about his achievements. And I started to learn humility. So I had a relationship with my dad and then he was exemplifying these different aspects of what it looked like to be like Christ. But exemplifying it to your children, exemplifying it to other people is not enough. You have to actually speak to them and I know that that is terrifying, but how incredible would it be if just once a week even you went to your child and say, you know what I want for you? I want you to be a man of God. I want you to be a woman of God. How much more impactful would that be than I want you to get straight A's and I want you to make starting varsity? How much more eternally significant that would be that your deepest most passionate desire for your child is that they would simply pursue the Lord. But parents, grandparents, just bringing them to this auditorium is not enough. You have to tell them. You have to tell them that. Just talk to them. Show some humility, some vulnerability, and open up to your child And if you are approaching that with prayer, you're going to see the Lord start to open up your relationship with your children and children with your parents in an incredible way. Children, if you think your parents are a little intimidated, then go to them and say, Mom, what do you want in my life, out of my life? Dad, how do you want me to follow God? One sentence is not going to kill you. Now, like I said, we often overlook discipleship. We, we just, we see right past it for some reason. And I think it really comes back to this idea that we've overcomplicated it. So a couple of years ago, and most of you, some of you, I hope, have seen this movie. A movie came out called War Room. And I remember when that movie came out. I'm going to say spoiler alert now because I'm going to mention a few things in the film if you haven't seen it. But I remember that film and I remember the aftermath of that film. And basically the premise is that there's this woman, Miss Clara, who's a real prayer warrior. And the main character, Elizabeth Jordan, is having problems in her marriage. She's having problems in her family. And she's a real estate agent. And she goes to Miss Clara's home to to look at it and survey it so she can sell it for her. And while she's there, she sees this tiny little room, maybe three feet wide, four feet deep, with just an individual chair in the room, and there's prayers all along the walls. And that was her war room. That was where she battled and wrestled with sin and wrestled with God, and she prayed. She prayed. And I remember after that film, everybody's like, oh my gosh, I have to set up my war room. I gotta clear out my closet. I gotta paste everything up on the walls and get out my prayers and put them all up on the walls and put a beanbag chair in there or a lazy boy in there so I can pray for hours on end, just like Miss Claire. I need my war room. I gotta pray, I gotta pray, I gotta pray. And yes, that is a fantastic attitude to have about prayer. But we completely missed the beautiful image of discipleship that's painted all throughout that movie that Elizabeth is taken under Miss Clara's wing. 
and she gets to know her. She talks with her about her husband, about her family, so they develop a relationship. And then she teaches her. She teaches her how to pray. She teaches her how to fight for the the sanctity of her marriage. She teaches her how to, to argue in a healthy way. Now, like I said, spoiler alert, towards the end of the film, she actually tells her, hey, have you found somebody to do this with, to teach now? And what's cool is Elizabeth tells her, you know, I found this woman and I think she's gonna do it with me. I'm gonna teach her how to make a war room and how to pray. And you see these three elements of relationship, rationalness, a student-pupil role, and then replication. She actually goes out and starts replicating. That's what discipleship is supposed to look like. When you look at discipleship through the lens of simplicity, it doesn't become a program or a curriculum or a to-do list. It's just a way of life. That discipleship is supposed to be something that's interwoven into everything that we do. That's why Deuteronomy 6 specifically says, as you walk by the way, as you sit down together, as you lie down, as you rise up, that this isn't something you pencil into your calendar, but it's something that you're living and breathing. So parents, as you're riding in the car with your children, you're talking to them about the scriptures. As you're sitting down for dinner as a family, you're talking with them about their day and you're talking with them about how they can handle their problems in a biblical way. Singles, you're coming to church and you're looking for individuals and say, that's a man of God, I wanna learn from them. That's a woman of God, I wanna learn from her. Or God is bringing you to a place where you are that mature believer with a life worth emulating and God is placing people in front of you for you to teach and for you to train and you could possibly become that five to one. You could be one of those five spots to impact a child, to impact a student. So this applies to each and every one of us because discipleship does not end. It ties in very closely with the idea of sanctification. Two terms that you may have heard, you may not have heard, justification and sanctification. Justification is a singular moment when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you are freely justified before a just and holy God. You are freely justified, justification. Sanctification is a lifelong process of becoming more and more like Christ. And discipleship is so interwoven into sanctification because as we become like Christ, we're supposed to grab and pull along with us anybody that we can. Really contemplate and think through what is God doing in my life? Who has he placed in my path? Is there someone that I look at and say, I wanna learn from them. And all you have to do is go up and ask. Just say, hey, can we have a conversation? Will you disciple me? Worst thing that happens is they say no. Maybe someone has been put in your path that you're supposed to lead and teach and guide and mentor. Go up to that person and say, hey, I'd love to sit down, you know, twice a month. Just have a conversation about your faith. So each of us are called into discipleship. This isn't for the church. It's for you because you are the church. This isn't a church ministry. This isn't a program. This isn't a curriculum. It's a way of life. That discipleship is something that's supposed to be a part of our daily lives. 
And all you have to do is beg God for the discernment and the wisdom to see who he is putting in your path to be discipled by or to disciple yourself. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. We'd love to hear how this message impacted you. To share your story, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.